Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. We've got a lot of mothers in here. Some of, and we all ended up here somehow. There must have been a mother involved. And uh, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here with us. Um, I think it's wonderful. And uh, if you're here because of your mother, because it's Mother's Day, we're thankful for that as well. So consider her way of life. Consider her faith. Consider the things that bring her here and the commitments that she's made. So we're uh, continuing on in our series this morning, the hidden music of John's gospel. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Last week we left off with um, the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, culmination, the highest, the most important sign that Jesus performs other than his own resurrection from the dead. And so uh, Jesus, we see in this text, he enters fully into human suffering. He enters fully into being together in solidarity with people in our brokenness, in our neediness. He wept together with Mary and Martha and the Jews who had come to mourn the passing of Lazarus. But Jesus, he doesn't just leave us in our impossible situations. He comes and he enters into them. And he provides new possibilities. And he does the impossible. So it says that upon, you know, the seeing this resurrection of Lazarus, it says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. You know, he does an amazing thing here. People thought this is impossible. No one had seen this in their lifetime. They just didn't know quite what to do with it. He is the resurrection and the life. At the command of Jesus Christ, at the command of Jesus Christ, death itself is forced to surrender Lazarus from the grave. And so whatever these people thought they knew about Jesus, whatever they had heard about Him before, it didn't matter because they had witnessed something so spectacular and so impossible they watched a man command life into someone who had been decomposing for four days. And then for some of them, things began to click. When you witness something that, like that, things begin to click. What if Jesus really is who he claimed to be? What if Jesus really was the person he claimed to be? That idea comes to us as well. It may have come to you sometime in your childhood, or it may have come to you when you're well along in years. Maybe you've walked away from Jesus functionally in your life a long time ago, but something happens to you, and then you find yourself asking the question, daring to ask the question, what if Jesus really is who he claimed to be 
What if Jesus really is the Son of God? And when just asking that question, it changes everything for us. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Having witnessed a resurrection... I'm not exactly sure how it is possible to have a resurrection or, or a reaction like this. I've just watched someone be raised from the dead, and my thought is, wow, I need to go report this to the authorities. But that is exactly what is happening in this situation. And this speaks to issues of worldview, it's issues of the way that shame works in our lives. It speaks something to our prejudices and the lens that we view reality through. The Jews did not have a category for Jesus. They had a messianic expectation, but it wasn't for a Messiah who acted the way Jesus acts. Much less a Messiah who describes himself in intimate and unified terms with God himself. Oneness with God, the way Jesus describes it, all they can see or hear is blasphemy. And they cannot entertain the possibility that Jesus actually is who he says he is. Because if they admit that, then of course they're going to have bigger problems, or so they think. See, some of these people, they're disturbed and they're threatened by what has happened. And they run down the road and they got to report these things to the authorities. And these events are so upsetting that the leading governmental body for the entire nation of the Jews is called together for a special session. What do we do about this? What do we do about this guy? What do we do about the Jesus problem? You know, it's funny how the heart reveals itself. Even we can, we can see hearts revealing themselves in the text of Scripture. First, the Sanhedrin, they say, if we let this guy keep on going, if we let, that means they thought that they were the ones in charge, didn't they? They thought they at least should have the power to manipulate and control this entire situation. Second, you can tell they're afraid. They're afraid of losing their influence with people, and this relates to their own positions of power that they had. They were in a pretty cushy place in their society, and they wanted to safeguard that. And so, of course, they tie that into the health and well-being of their nation. A lot of selfish ambition gets wrapped up in the guise of patriotism. They fear for their nation, yes, but the real concern is for themselves and their places of privilege, what they are getting out of it, being at the top of this current system. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. 
You don't know what you guys are talking about. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. <coughs> Excuse me. Hairball. You know, I just swallow wrong sometimes. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. You see, the high priest at this time, they usually served for multiple years, and so the Greek here can be translated like, but the high priest in this fateful year or this, year, this important year tied to the events that are taking place. <coughs> so Caiaphas, he chooses to say these words as a high priest. He chooses them out of his own volition. He chooses these words to condemn and justify murdering Jesus in order to protect the system that he is a part of. But one of the interesting things about the way God works, and especially the way he works in prophecy... Caiaphas, he has no idea of the breadth and depth of the truth that he is speaking, does he? The full implications of these words are yet to be realized in Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection and glorification. But after he speaks, things change. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They tried to grab Jesus up, at this, up to this point. They tried to grab him. They tried to stone him different times. They always have rocks available. But never, things never work out. But now a death sentence is given by the leading authorities of the Jewish nation. See, before, they didn't like what Jesus was saying and do, doing. He, was, he kept embarrassing them publicly, making them look foolish. His popularity with the people, with common people, it aroused a whole lot of jealousy. But something changes now with the resurrection of Lazarus. The depth of their fear and their insecurity is fully revealed and they are threatened by this man who has power to command life itself. And they're so threatened that now they are ready to commit murder. Jesus gets wind of this, though. And it says, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples so I guess it must have been friends of Jesus he had friends in different places they come and they tell him uh, from this meeting of the Sanhedrin that he has now a death warrant on him so Jesus withdraws and he continues to wait for the father's perfect timing when the full intentions of God's will they will be revealed so when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, 
Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So if, if a person had been defiled in some way from touching a dead body or whatever, this is the first group of people who would come in to Jerusalem for a Passover. They would come in a little bit earlier to have time to be ritually purified. And so it's just kind of like the pregame warm-up for the big event. That they uh, that, that makes us sound like it's a, a tailgate party before a football game or something, but... Uh, it's not like that, <laughs> but it is kind of in the sense of it's a big social gathering. It is the thing to be doing. And so they would go for these, this ceremonial cleansing before uh, the actual Passover. And so even now, there's lots of people coming in. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Is he going to show up? And what's going to happen if he does? It was the talk of the city. Well, he does show up. And of all the places, he shows up at a dinner party with friends. And in the hidden music of John's Gospel, remember that Jesus' public ministry, it begins at a wedding feast, a dinner party of sorts. A wedding feast in Cana where an extravagant sign takes place. So now Jesus' ministry, it's coming full circle. And he's at a dinner party once again. And at this dinner party, another extravagant act is going to take place. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint, it's like half a liter, of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house is filled with it. Hold this image in your mind for a moment. This reckless and beautiful and extravagant act. What is Mary feeling at this point? I think she's so overwhelmed with love and gratitude for Jesus that her soul is literally just overflowing, overflowing with love. This beautiful act. And as she's pouring out perfume, really she's pouring out her heart. And the fragrance of her adoration and worship of Jesus 
It fills the room. It's so unashamed. It's so uninhibited. It's so completely beautiful. And then imagine how this situation turns when she begins to be criticized by a disciple of Jesus. Someone who's more important than her. A man putting this woman in her place. He speaks up and he starts to shame Mary for being so wasteful. And that uninhibited love for Jesus, it's interrupted and she begins maybe to be embarrassed. She begins to doubt herself and her actions and begins to look around the room. I would say for us in the Church of Christ, it's the equivalent of someone feeling so moved in adoration and worship that they begin to, you, be, you know, you, you're just so moved by the songs that are being led or something, that you begin to clap and maybe raise holy hands. And then you look around and you realize, I'm in a church of people that don't do this and don't think you should be able to do this. And you kind of tuck it back in a little bit, a little bit slightly embarrassed. Sometimes we're a little bit defiant and we're just like, you know what, it shouldn't be this way. And I'm just for whatever the reasons are. But that feeling of being embarrassed or being shamed or imagining being shamed. What will people think? What will people say? So let me say a word about the way Judas shames Mary in this incident. Shame is a primary way that the enemy of your soul, it, you, he uses this to prevent you from utilizing the gifts that you've been given. Shame keeps us from doing extravagant things for Jesus and for other people. What will people think? What will people say? If shame is at work, you will not fully use your gifts to the glory of God. When shame is at work, you will not fully become the person God intends you to become. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But now his heart is revealed. John gives us a little piece of the larger story. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Pull out a little bit for himself. And that was worth a lot of money. And if they would have sold that and that money would have ended up in that money bag, he would have got a little extra of that, I think. Uh, I think Mark chapter 14 shows this most clearly. But just as Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus was the straw that broke the camel's back for the Sanhedrin, that they decide they're going to put a death warrant out on Jesus, so this extravagant act of Mary, which Jesus accepts, 
It's the straw that breaks the camel's back for Judas. Mark tells us that it is at this time, because of this event, that Judas, he goes to the Sanhedrin and he told them that he would hand Jesus over to them. And they're so delighted that they promised to pay Judas money for betraying Jesus. So, someone is raised from the dead. Jesus is anointed by this woman if pure, a pure act of love and gratitude. These are amazing and beautiful events. So why is it that some people can't accept them as amazing and beautiful events? It's because shame is at work in people's individual lives, in the culture, in the system, the religious systems. Shame is at work. See, shame feeds fear. The fear of the Sanhedrin, we've heard about it, is that they will lose what they have. The Romans will take it away from us. We're not going to be the, top, on the, cream, the cream of the crop of society anymore. Judas's fear. What would motivate him to steal from the money purse? A motivation that says, you know what, there's not enough to go around. Which is really a fear. God, I don't know if he's going to take care of me. Shame, it twists the stories we tell ourselves in our head. It works in so many levels. There's not enough to go around, so I've got to fight for my fair share. If I have to stomp on a few people along the way, it's just what has to happen. Shame will lead us to do evil to other people. Shame says, I'm not good enough. Shame whispers in our lives, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm ugly. Shame keeps us from seeing ourselves and others clearly. A lot of times when people, you know, you, you, you will say something and you say it in love, and you've, have you been around people that they cannot take anyone else's advice ever? Do you know these people? Well, they're, they're, we're, we're here in this church. <laughs> I can't take people's advice ever. You know, behind that, that is shame at work. We think this person is just stubborn. Or this person is just prideful. And what lies behind that, that, that pride or that stubbornness, that refusal to take anyone's word, that refusal to be helped, what lies behind that is fear. And behind that fear is always shame at work. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm afraid of what will happen if I take this advice, if I appear weak in any way, if 
Things will change. I'll have to admit I'm wrong. And we can't admit we are wrong about anything because we're so afraid of what might happen. Shame invites fear and worry. And we spend so many, so much time is lost on the what ifs. Some of us, we go through imaginary arguments with people who are dead and buried years ago. Or we imagine situations and scenarios that might come up and we begin to have these arguments and we... We begin to worry about worst case scenarios. It's not even reasonable, the stories that we tell ourselves. On some level, we know it. But on some level, we are so scared, we, if you, we just are happier, we think, being self-deceived. Shame, it'll keep you from being vulnerable to others. Shame tells us that if such and such were known about me, if people really knew this about me, Shame, we see it at work in the Sanhedrin. We see it at work in Judas. We see it at work in, in, in Mary when she is shamed. If things were to change, if Jesus really is who He says He is, we could lose everything. It would be really bad. We're so scared of change. Uh, interesting book I've been reading. Kurt Thomas Thompson, he is a psychiatrist and he specializes in neurology, but he's also a Christian. And so he brings spiritual insights into all of his writing as well. He says, shame is a disintegrating force within the mind, in our relationships, and in our communities. So where does it live? It lives in our mind. It's between us in our interpersonal relationships, shame also gets embedded into cultures and communities. Why is shame so powerful in our lives? It's because it exists in all of the structures where we are nurtured, typically. And it taints our primary, our foundational kind of nurturing relationships. Shame exists in our families. Shame exists in this group, in this church, and the culture that we have in this church. Shame exists in our educational institutions. Shame is so powerful because it's not something that infests just individuals. It's endemic in systems. And any system run by shame will seek to maintain equilibrium. Just as in John's Gospel, the healing of the paralytic, remember him, his healing? I think it's chapter 5. The healing of the man born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? The resurrection of Lazarus. Even Mary's extravagant adoration. In all of these events, there's huge pushback. These are amazing miracles that people cannot even recognize or see. Why is that pushback there? It's because there's fear in people's lives and behind that fear is shame at work in that broken and dysfunctional cultural system. 
Why doesn't everyone experience unrestrained joy? It's because there's a system that's trying to maintain equilibrium. A system that's trying to maintain control. Kurt Thomas also says, Whenever genuine acts of goodness evoke responses of distress, you can count on shame being at work. So let me say about a word about shame at work in the family, shame at work in educational institutions, shame at work in the church. You know, shame, as we tend to think of it in the family, we would tend to relate it as verbal abuse, and sometimes that does happen. You've been shamed by your parents, siblings who shame one another with the words that they say to each other. Uh, But a lot of times, shame is much more subtle than that. Shame can be at work in all of our lives on some level because you may be a very functional, high-functioning individual. But there's an unspoken norm in your family where you realize failure is not an option. And you feel that pressure. Even though it's not spoken and no one said it, failure is not an option. That leads to, I have to get everything done perfectly. And when I'm not perfect, the fear of that. And people who have grown up with this level of shame are in a constant state of anxiety and fear, afraid to make mistakes. I have to be perfect. You're wound up so tight. You can't relax. A lot of times people who are struggling with the shame from a family of origin, they can't sleep even. Their sleep patterns are interrupted. Shame exists in our institution. I remember the first time I was shamed publicly in a classroom for being a Christian. It was at Boise State University in a logic class that I was in. And... uh, When he found out that I was a Christian, he refused to give me an A and he changed my grade to a B and said, that's the highest grade I'll give a Christian in my class. And if you try to call me on that with the administration, I'm going to lie about it and it's your word against mine. Shamed me. You're superstitious, you're ignorant, you're dumb. He was speaking out of shame. He was using that to try to shame me. Shame at work in the church. I remember a kind of painful incident for me. You know, I thought, we need to have more people praying in our congregation. And when we don't allow our women to participate in the prayers of the church, we're tying one hand behind our back, if not more. But I was afraid. I feel like this is important. I want this to go well. So I went and I talked to my minister. I was a youth minister at the time. I went to talk to him. We had this conversation. And his advice to me was, I think you're right. We need to invite, and I was just in the youth group, if you want to invite the young ladies of the church to be a part of a prayer where everyone's praying together, I don't have a problem with that. But some people feel funny about what goes on inside the church building. So just don't do it inside the church building. So I'm like, okay, well, let's invite them all. And it was a nice summer night. We all went outside. And we begin 
and I say we're going to have this prayer, and uh, I want to invite any of you who feel led to be able to pray in this context. This is a safe place. No one's usurping no one's authority here. Don't worry about that. We just need to learn how to pray together more. And one young lady in that group, she said, it is a sin for a woman to pray in the presence of male baptized believers. And I said, I respect your perspective, but I don't agree with it. And I want to invite you, anyone who's comfortable, if you're not comfortable with this, don't do it. Of course, after she said that, the other young ladies are pretty, there's a culture of shame even there. Teenagers to step out and try to do something new in that kind of context? Well, I remember uh, shortly after being called into an emergency session with my elders. And I remember how it felt when I was shamed by my eldership. They said in the presence of those other families there, you should know better. And she is a more mature Christian in the faith than you are. And they kind of, the families kind of were like, yeah. And you can see them kind of swell up. And I just, I'm, I'm a pretty young Christian myself at this point. My elders, they shamed me. It exists in the congregation as well. It exists here in this room. The shame we carry is a burden. And Jesus, he wants to free us from this level of shame. He wants to set us free from it. Because when we're scared and when we're, we're under the burden of shame, we can't be fully the people God intends us to be. We will not use our gifts as fully as the Lord intends our gifts to be used. You know, we have a tremendous power and potential for healing as a church. See, Jesus, he's our, he's our master teacher. He shows his disciples how to turn attention away from judgment and blame and to possibility. Who sinned, this man or his parents? That something so awful, this blindness is upon him. No. This is to show the work of God. This is to show God's glory. Jesus, He's reframing this situation. And He's inviting us to do the same as well. We're not called to judge each other. I'm not saying that the elders don't have, and even me as a minister, have to make calls on certain things about where we stand. But it's not our place to judge in the sense of condemnation.
able to save and the one who was able to destroy. That is the judge. Shame endemic in many of the systems of our culture. It's very hard for you as an individual or even as a family to break out from underneath it. But if we as a church, as a community of faith, began to do this more intentionally, if we took the next little step in our relationships with each other, if we allowed just a little bit more vulnerability, a group this size, small as our church is, weak as we are, with all the problems that we already have, even in our baby steps, this would become a better place because God will take that and He will honor it and what we can do collectively as a body, it will help us break out of dysfunctional things all around us all the time. Trusting people, it requires finding people that are trustworthy. We have to be careful sometimes with the people that we are most vulnerable with even in the church, because we're in process. We be wise about it. But the cost of just burying shame, burying our sins, hiding things, the cost of that is a whole lot higher than the risk of what we share. But you're afraid to do it because shame is at work. What will people think if they knew this about me? Sometimes breaking the patterns of shame it requires putting healthy new uh, habits into place. What are you feeding yourself? How do you counteract the voices in your head that are shaming you? Sometimes as a minister, I feel like, I can't do this. I see a lot. I probably, you know, you don't know all I know about all y'all's messes. more than we've ever spoken sometimes. Because as a trained spiritual director, as someone who has given himself to listening and observing and discerning people's behavior and actions and where's God in all of this, I see the story behind your story sometimes. And maybe I don't know specifics, but I can see some of that at work. I also know it because I also have my stories that I hold. And that I keep myself back in some ways and reserved and protected. That's shame at work in my life. Healthy new habits in place. We destroy shame with community. We destroy shame, the acts that we do in community together. Worship, prayer, the reading of Scripture, studying together. And it also requires uh, for us to break the grip of shame. It requires us to, um, to keep at it. Because this doesn't go away easily. It doesn't go away just because we are aware of it or know more about it or know the facts about it. There is a great distance sometimes between our minds and our hearts. Is there not?
Mary's just been shamed by Judas. But before this situation can even develop any further, he says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Mary's actions were uninhibited. And when people, even in this church, break out and truly try to do extraordinary things for Jesus, we're going to bump up against shame working against us, trying to maintain a certain equilibrium and comfort in the system. And people are going to miss how beautiful your actions are. They won't be able to see the miracle of your faith and your trust in Jesus. You think about her when she she does this and then Judas says this. What is she feeling at that point? But before the complaints even start to come in, Jesus rescues her. Leave her alone. Her actions are validated in the raw beauty of her love. It's received by Jesus. In the hidden music of John's Gospel, this event takes us back to the extravagance of Jesus. Remember the beginning dinner party, the wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus takes water and He turns it into choice wine. Bathtubs full of it basically. So much extravagance. And now in this event, Mary takes the very best that she has. It's worth a year's salary of the people of that time. Over 300 denarii. You get a denarius the day you work and after you take away the the festivals and the weekends off or whatever, that's a year's salary. She breaks it open. In the hidden music of John's Gospel, not only does our Lord give extravagantly, but He receives extravagantly. He receives this act of pure love and beauty. And then He defends her against the other voices that are beginning to try to speak into this. So many of us have been stunted in our spiritual growth and the growth of our faith because we have never given extravagantly to God. We've never given sacrificially to God. I'm not talking just about money. It's a whole lot bigger than money. We're stunted because we've never given fully or extravagantly or recklessly to our Lord. Mary's inviting us to something here. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna is the transliteration of a Hebrew word that literally means give salvation now. Lord, save us. Save us now. This is followed by that quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, the cry of those people, a recognition of Jesus as Messiah. Blessed is the King of Israel. These are the cries of the human heart. A cry for justice, a cry for help, a cry for mercy. A cry that comes out of humanity when we realize, I'm a part of a broken system. Things should not be this way. Shame should not exist in this church at this level. And we cry out for the justice of King Jesus. For King Jesus to come and make things better and make things right. We long for His government. We long for it in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages. We put on a good show, but there are a lot of unhealthy marriages in this, in this room. In our cities, in our government, we long for the justice of King Jesus to come, the righteousness of His kingship to come and fix things. Hosanna. Lord, save us. And sometimes when our King comes, we don't always recognize it because He comes so quietly and so gently. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your King is coming. Seated on the donkey's colt, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written down about him and that they had done these things to him. So John refers to this prophecy from Zechariah. At this time, the disciples didn't even understand the full significance of this. But the Lord continues to reveal it. See, Jesus, He doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse or on the back of a chariot. He chooses to present Himself as a King who comes in peace. He comes with great humility. And just the fanfare of a few people who were longing for a true King. Shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This prophecy from Zechariah, written hundreds of years before this event, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're going to sing an invitation song, just one verse, 
But we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. You know, I, I'm so grateful for everyone who's, who's here this morning. Uh, and if you're just visiting or whatever, you're just going to have to uh, give us a moment. Don't feel uncomfortable. But shame and the brokenness that exists even in this congregation is a problem that we need to take seriously. And so I'm going to invite you forward. And this isn't just a normal coming forward thing. I hope that maybe half of this people in this room will come forward and stand together with your minister. And I want to pray over us for a few things. So we'll gather right up here in the front. There's plenty of room. Put a hand on the shoulder of a person next to you. Hold a hand. Stand there with your children. And we're going to cluster up and be in close proximity with each other. And then I'm going to ask the Lord. to drive out shame from our midst this morning. This is a spiritual battle going on. And we're going to ask the Lord for spiritual breakthrough in our lives. Spiritual breakthrough in this church. We're going to ask for God's forgiveness and we're going to ask for God's healing. If you don't feel it and you don't want to come forward, don't come forward. But maybe you just see someone come forward and you want to support them because you love them. Maybe you'll come forward just because, you know what, I love this church and I want these things for this church. We need healing from our sin, healing from our physical ailments and our diseases, healing for our broken hearts. Will you come stand with me up here as we stand and sing together?